something that I found in my 40 plus years of celebrating Christmas is that um, when I focus on little baby Jesus, and that is my only focus during Christmas, there is a lack. Um, not that the incarnation is not the greatest mystery and miracle in the history of the world. However, it still feels 2,000 years ago. And it puts Jesus in a little baby's body, and if that's my only focus, that seems to come up short a little bit in terms of celebrating Advent and the Nativity. What I would say to you is this, and I've just kind of learned this the last couple of years, when we begin to look at Advent and the Nativity through the lens of Christ's return, it can bring a whole lot of joy, a whole lot of hope and expectation that lasts beyond December 25th. I've also learned this, that when you, when you look at the season that even our culture presents, that when you read it through the lens or listen to it through the lens of anticipating Christ's second return, some interesting observations and understandings can pop up. That's definitely true about our Christmas carols, um, that a lot of them, as we've been singing, have that future orientation as well. But one that I've just been thinking about the last couple of days is the Polar Express. All right? Let me read to you the first page of the Polar Express. On Christmas Eve, many years ago, I lay quietly in my bed. I did not rustle the sheets. I breathed slowly and silently. I was listening for a sound. A sound a friend had told me I'd never hear. The ringing bells of Santa's sleigh. There is no Santa, my friend had insisted. But I knew he was wrong. Late that night, I did hear sounds, though not of ringing bells. From outside came the sounds of hissing steam and squeaking metal. I looked through my window and saw a train standing perfectly still in front of my house. Last night we put up our tree as a family, and one of our Christmas traditions is that we watch the Polar Express as we put up our tree. If you haven't read the book or seen the movie, uh, they're both great. They're both they're a little different from one another, but um, both are about kids, specifically one kid that we meet here in this first page, going to the North Pole, hoping, expecting, believing to see Santa. In the movie, you see three kids doing this. They kind of group off among a larger group of kids that are in the train, and they end up exploring the North Pole, believing to certain degrees, that they will bump into Santa as they explore his home and his town. It's a story of belief that is tested over time and over travel. It's a story of waiting. Is Santa actually real? Will we see him? Even wondering that when they were actually at the North Pole. One of the interesting things about both the book and the movie is that it, it stirs up in us kind of these emotions that we ourselves feel when we talk about waiting and longing. Our belief is tested. It exposes our hearts. Maybe our own deficient belief. But it also presents possibilities, opportunities, adventure, warmth, and ultimately that one person that we hope to meet. Consider this with me for a minute. Waiting is nearly synonymous with faith. Waiting is nearly synonymous with faith. You see throughout the scope of the Bible, the, the juice has barely dripped off Adam and Eve's chin when God Himself, as He's cursing the serpent, says, listen, she's going to have offspring? You're going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush your head. The waiting begins in Genesis chapter 3. And it proceeds all the way through. You get to the end of the Old Testament, and God's chosen people, Israel, 
enter into a period of waiting 400 years as the Spirit has left the temple and they are waiting for another word from God. Generations. Think of 400 years back from now. It was 1619. It's a long time ago. It's before our country. Definitely. That's a long time to wait. And God's people were waiting. And then you enter into the Christmas story and and the book of Luke is a book about waiting. We're going to consider it a little bit more specifically later on, but if you're not reading something for Advent, I'd, I'd say go into the book of Luke and look specifically for how he, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is stirring up the waiting and also talking about people who are waiting from Israel to Zechariah and Elizabeth to Mary and Joseph to Simeon and Anna and the shepherds, and on and on and on. Zacchaeus waiting in the tree later on in the book. So you see this waiting continue to pulse throughout the Bible, leading to what Bill has mentioned a few times this morning. The very last verse of Revelation says, Come, Lord Jesus. Faith is nearly synonymous with waiting. See, we often say that it is not the strength of our faith that is ultimate, but it is the object of our faith. Our faith wavers. But it's the object of our faith that is actually truly the faithful one. He's the one who our faith is in. Similarly, waiting presupposes that there is something or someone worth waiting for. Someone or something worth waiting for. The object, get this, the object of our wait determines whether or not it is worth the wait. Waiting is nearly synonymous with faith. So we've been going through the book of Philippians. Bill and I decided to slow down a little bit here in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 so that we could explore the reality that we are citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven who are awaiting a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will, as we explore next week, exchange our lowly bodies and give us His resurrected body. And then Bill will wrap up our Advent season with the last part of verse 21 where it talks about Him subjecting, Christ subjecting all things to himself. These are things that as citizens of heaven we are longing to see. So today, Paul is saying, yes, it is worth the wait. The appearance of Jesus Christ as the Savior is worth the wait. Jessica, would you mind throwing up that slide, please? So as we're talking about this second advent, this second return of Christ, we need to explore a little bit of what the Bible says about this return. Okay, I'm going to answer three questions this morning. How will Jesus come back? When will Jesus come back? And how should we wait for Jesus to come back? First question is this, how will Jesus come back? Let me tell you this, as an honored guest, the King, welcomed by His people, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Christ will be welcomed as a conquering king, and what would happen back in the days when this, when this was written? When, a, when word would, would be heard in a city that the king was returning and that he and his army had won, the people would leave the city and go out and greet them and escort them back into the city. This is the picture that we're getting here in 1 Thessalonians. When Christ returns, the dead in, the, the dead in Christ will rise to welcome Him and any of us who are still alive We're going to get to go up and welcome Him too. And welcome Him back to the earth. He will be an honored guest. The King. You see that in the left side of the illustration up here. However, He will also be welcomed as a dreaded judge by everyone else. 
Revelation 1.7 says this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. When Christ comes on that day, there will be two radically different responses. Extreme joy for all of those who are in Him and know Him and have been waiting eagerly for Him. And extreme dread for all of those who said, that's never going to happen. Thirdly, Christ will return. His return will be personal, visible, and in power. Acts 1, 9-11, And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. This is the ascension. And a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. In Mark 13, 61-64, as He's on trial the night before He was killed, says this, but Jesus remained silent and He made no answer to their questions. Again, the high priest asked Him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What we we must see here is this direct line from redemption at the cross to the resurrection to the ascension to the return. The things that we celebrate at Advent, at Christmas, at Lent, at Easter, these things that we take as true, His future return is just as true. Brothers and sisters, we need to confess our disbelief in His return and believe. In the Polar Express movie, these three kids, uh, there's the the main protagonist, the main character who has originally left his bed from the, the very beginning and gotten on the train. Then there is a boy from the other side of the tracks who doesn't seem to really deserve or doesn't even believe that he deserves to even be anywhere close to the North Pole. Definitely doesn't believe he deserves anything from Santa. And there's a third girl, and she's kind of the staunch believer in this trio. And as they're trying to go through the town, you've got this girl leading the way, and the kid from the other side of the tracks kind of lagging behind, and the original main character the farthest behind. And as they're running through, you can see something is guiding them. And the girl keeps saying, I can hear sleigh bells. I can hear sleigh bells. They're this way. And they approach a tunnel. Kind of a a sewer tunnel. And they stop. She considers, should we go in? She listens. She says, we got to go this way. And the main character says, are you sure? And she looks back at him and kind of pauses, sort of with an incredulous look on her face. She says, absolutely. She was listening to the sleigh bells and continuing to follow, knowing that where the sleigh bells were, there would be Santa. Listen, I hope you're getting that I'm not equating Jesus with Santa. But we are reading what our culture puts out there. A nice story. Through the lens of Christ. She was sure. He was not. She was ready to go into the sewer. He was not. Are you sure? Absolutely. Listen, we can be sure that Jesus will return because Jesus was sure. So second question is this. 
When will Jesus come back? Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 13, 32-33. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Jesus was sure that He was returning. In His incarnate state, there on the earth, even at that point, He was not sure when He would be returning, but He knew one thing for sure, He would be returning. So where does that leave us as we wait? As we wait. Well, let's, let's have a, a quick discussion of two words that are often tossed around when we talk about Jesus' return. The rapture and imminence. Alright? Rapture is a term for the secret removal of Christians from the earth. Um, popularized by the Left Behind books. Could also throw in a thief in the night, a cult classic, Christian cult classic back in the 1970s. All right. It's this idea that before the tribulation, before things really get rough, God is going to come and rescue his people from the earth, that we won't experience any of that or very little of it. The word imminence means about to happen, and it's often paired with the rapture. Because what it does is it emphasizes the sudden surprise arrival of Jesus for His people. Rescuing them from the wrath to come according to a certain interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So rapture and imminence. Basically saying, like, today. When you go home. Or you might not even make it home because the rapture could happen while we're sitting here. And everyone who belongs to Christ would be gone. And anyone who's not, or who is not in Christ, would stay here. And that could happen while you're in a plane. That could happen, you know. Left Behind came up with a lot of scenarios. However, a more straightforward reading of Scripture does not seem to point to a secret rapture, but rather to a single day. The day of the Lord. When Jesus will return as both judge of the world and king of his people. Does this mean that the rapture will not happen? I have to shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know. It might. And I might really appreciate it if it does. Because the implication of that is that there would be a lot less suffering for Christians if the rapture happened first. However, I, I just. I don't see that biblically. In fact, sometimes I wonder if we're waiting for the rapture, people who cling to that understanding of the return of Christ, they cling to the rapture instead of clinging to an eager expectation of Jesus' return. Aren't they the same? I don't think so. One can be waiting for deliverance from the world and a desire to escape judgment and a refining of the church, whereas the other is waiting for the glorious return of Christ in the midst of extreme suffering and persecution, the refining of the church. So, hear this. If you're someone that takes the rapture to be true, that's okay. I'm just telling you that I'm not personally looking for the rapture. I'm looking to the clouds for Jesus to return as King. If you're looking for the rapture, why? All right, so if we're not saying anything about the rapture, then what are we saying about imminence? Like, could Christ really come out of the clouds today? Yeah, he could. But before answering that in explicit full terms, emphatically, let me tell you a few things that the Bible seems to indicate will happen before Christ returns. Mark 13 says that the preaching of the Gospel will occur to all nations before the return of Christ. Mark 13 also seems to indicate there will be a great tribulation on the earth with the church still there before the return of Christ. Mark 13 also points to false Christs and false prophets, powerful signs in the heavens. 2 Thessalonians 2 
talks about the coming of the man of lawlessness, a personality who will be anti-Christ. And finally, in Romans 9 through 11, there will be a great turning of Jewish people to Christ. Now, do these stipulations for things that must happen before Christ returns weaken the concept of imminence that Christ could come at any time? No, but it might lengthen its meaning a little bit. Listen, it didn't weaken Jesus or Paul or Peter or John or James, all of whom stressed both readiness and the soon return to come of Jesus. They wrote, stay awake. Stay awake. Be ready. But at the same time, they talked about the things that seem to be in the works before He actually returns. Even consider Jesus. Jesus spoke of His return before He died. The angels spoke of His return before Pentecost. So even in those two evaluations of His return, Jesus and the angels themselves were saying there has to be some time that passes before Jesus comes back. They stressed the return of Jesus as sudden and soon, yet with other things needing to happen first. So where does that leave us? I appreciate Wayne Grudem's conclusion in light of these probably yet to come conditions. He says this, it's unlikely but possible that these signs that I had just mentioned, these signs have already been fulfilled. I mean, consider this, that the gospel has to be preached to all nations. Um, How fast do things go viral? How interconnected is our world these days? We may have certain measurements of what it means for the gospel to be preached to all nations, certain statistics that that say that there are still unreached people groups. Okay, but I'm going to leave that interpretation to the Lord. So that could have already been fulfilled. Doesn't seem that it has been, but it could have been. And you could put those other things in that category as well. It is unlikely but possible, this is again Grudem, unlikely but possible that these signs have already been fulfilled. It is possible. So, is it possible for imminence to be ready for something we think unlikely to happen in the near future? Is it possible to believe in the imminent, soon-to-return of Christ with these things still out there? Certainly it is. Everyone who wears a seatbelt when driving or purchases auto insurance gets ready for an event he or she thinks to be unlikely. In a similar way, it seems possible to take seriously the warnings that Jesus that Jesus could come when we are not expecting Him, and nonetheless to say that the signs preceding His coming will probably yet occur in the future. In another example, expectant parents await the day of their child's birth. And they do all sorts of things to get themselves ready for the due date, but that baby may still surprise them earlier than the due date. See, we have to have humility and interpretation Great expectation that God's Word will be proven true in every single detail, regardless of the timing. And so we wait. So third question. How will Jesus come back? When will Jesus come back? Number three, how should we wait for Jesus to come back? And that answer is simple. To say. Maybe a little less simple. To do. We should wait eagerly. Eagerly. That's the sense of awaiting when Paul writes about awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Philippians 3. The the question within the question here is, are we waiting eagerly? And how do we know if we are? You ever think about that? We went to... um, Niagara Falls two summers ago, okay, to the Canadian side, which I hear is a lot better than the American side. I don't know. Didn't go to the other side. Canadian side, and it really is a wonderful experience. We were anticipating it. Others had gone there and said, you're going to love it. We show up, and you buy your ticket first, right? You could see the falls off in the distance. 
Um, but we wanted to get on a boat and actually experience the full thunderous power of Niagara Falls. So we wanted to get on a boat. So you buy your tickets, and after you buy your tickets, you kind of walk around this building, and then you see this line. And you walk down the line. It's a, it's a single file line. And you walk down the line, and you keep walking, and keep walking, and keep walking. And the line stretches for like two to three blocks. And as you're walking down this line, you're thinking, did I just pay a lot of money for nothing? Because I don't know if we're going to make it to the boat. But you know what people say to you as you're walking down the line? The line goes fast. We were way back there just a few minutes ago, and you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. It can't go that fast. Then you get in the back of the line, and your feet are moving almost the entire time. Almost as quickly as you walk to the end of the line, your feet are moving to go towards the boat. See, the thing is, the boat carries 400 people at a time. So this line of literally thousands of people goes really quickly. It goes really quickly. And you eagerly await with anticipation getting on that boat. And it's happening. You can feel the throng moving forward to get on the boat. It's that eager expectation. So when you're in a line like that, you know what you're waiting for. You know that you are eagerly awaiting because you're in that line. You didn't buy your ticket and say, we're good, we're going out back. No, you stay in the line because you see it moving somewhere and you stay. And the encouragement of the other people help as well. So, what we're going to do is we're going to finish up in the book of Luke. We'll get more back into Philippians chapter 3 and the the whole book of Philippians next week. But Luke is super instructive in how to wait eagerly. How to help us answer this question, are we actually waiting eagerly? It's a book full of waiting, as I mentioned before. And I'm going to mention three men and one woman who eagerly awaited Christ and His kingdom And they show us some ways to wait eagerly. Would you turn to Luke 18, please? It's on page 877 if you are using the Pew Bibles. Uh, There's some some weeks when um, sermon prep happens and life happens while you're doing sermon prep. And other times, beautifully, when the Lord shows up just in my own time in the Word, and says, you need to preach this on Sunday. Um, going back into Luke was one of those things this week. Particularly this first section that we're going to read. And the other sections as well. But particularly this first one. Um, really, really, really ministered to my heart earlier in the week. And it's, it's an interesting parable that Jesus says here. Luke chapter 18. Jesus wants us to wait eagerly. And pray like we're waiting eagerly. 18.1 And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Let's just pause there for a minute. What are the things that are that you're experiencing now that can cause you to lose heart? I feel like I'm waiting in that long line and I just... I mean, what's to come... I, I, I believe it and I want it, but I just don't know if I can stay in line. Just don't know if it's worth the wait. I'm losing heart. See, Jesus knew because He knows our hearts that the wait could feel long. The wait could feel endless. It could feel like there truly 
was no worth to the weight. And that we might lose heart. So he says, he tells them this parable that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Not a good judge. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But after what he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that's the question that hangs in the air. What, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, he's realizing we could lose heart and the wait seems long, but continue to pray. Continue to pray. Continue to pray. And then he tells this parable about this judge who was not a godly judge. And what, what he's doing is he says, if even this ungodly judge who has no need for God or man, if even this ungodly judge will answer the cries for justice of this persistent widow, won't God, who has chosen you and made you His elect, who has looked from the, from the, 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 fore, the forecast of eternity and said, I'm going to love them and set my love upon them, will He not also even more so, answer your prayers and keep your heart even as you cry to Him? Will He not give you justice? And so the question that hangs in the air is this. If we have such a Father, if we have such a Judge, if we have such a God, will we pray like that? Will we pray persistently? George Mueller said this. He said, George Mueller was, Old school guy in England. He was actually German, but lived in England. Raised up tons of orphanages. Didn't even let his needs be known. He just prayed and thanked God for every penny. And he said this, it is not the problem that Christians don't pray. Their problem is they don't persist in prayer. They don't persist. They don't continue on. They don't hold fast and say, give me justice. Answer my prayers, God. I'm one of your elect. You've given me all things in Christ Jesus. And Lord, do this please for your glory and for my good. Will we persist in prayer to the point where we say, Jesus is coming back. And God, use me for your kingdom purposes. Answer my kingdom prayers for your glory. Simeon and Anna, they're in Luke chapter 2, and I won't go there right now, but I'll just tell you briefly the story. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple, and Simeon has literally been waiting there for what he calls the consolation of Israel. The word that Paul uses for waiting in Philippians 3 has the same sense as the word for Simeon awaiting the consolation of Israel, the arrival of the Messiah. He's given his life to being in the temple and waiting. His persistence is challenging. His waiting is what we should strive for. Anna was also there. She was a widow. She'd been a widow for a long time. And it says that what she did is she also spent all of her time in the temple. And she committed herself 
to worshiping and praying and fasting. Kind of a fasting like we talked about over the summer. A fasting for the return of Christ. A fasting desiring the Messiah to come. And then Jesus shows up and both of them are incredibly joyous and fulfilled because they see face to face their Messiah. But they waited eagerly by praying eagerly. You're pretty close to it. Would you flip over to Luke chapter 21? Go to verse 25. Jesus is approaching the cross here. It's coming a few chapters later. And in verse 25, he says this about his return. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, hear this, straighten up, raise your heads, He's talking to his disciples. Straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now look at verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts, again, he's talking about the heart, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. That's another word for decadence. Lest your hearts be weighed down with decadence and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But, speaking to his disciples, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What should we be praying for foremost in an eager way? is that the deception of this world and of our own flesh would not deceive us into thinking He's not actually coming back. And that we should pray, God, turn my heart to seek Your return. He says, pray, stay awake. This is how, you, this is how we stay woke, church. We pray. We pray that Christ would return and that we would be able to stand in Him and that we would be faithful until that day. So we pray with eager expectation. But note there, this temptation to decadence, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Because that speaks to a second thing. Pray eagerly, and for the sake of rhyming and alliteration, I'm going to say pay eagerly. As you read through Luke over Advent, Don't only look to how things are looking forward, but how Jesus talks about money and wealth. It's different than all the other three Gospels. I think it might have to do with who Luke is writing to. The Spirit forms the words of Jesus to present to this rich man, Theophilus, what it means to look like to be a faithful, rich man. But here's the thing. If you look at Luke chapter 16... There's another strange parable. Luke 16, verse 1. Page 875 in your pew Bible. Jesus writes this, or says this, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
So, summoning his, ma- his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, uh, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a uh, hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. We would expect Jesus to smash this parable and smash this dishonest manager. But see how he turns the application here. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. Basically, people that, in, people that find their glory and identity in the wealth of this world are more shrewd in handling that in their own generation amongst their peers, gaining more wealth than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends by yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That's Jesus' way of generalizing the wealth and the goods of this world. Unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the heavenly dwellings. Into the eternal dwellings. Interesting parable. What Jesus is saying here is this. We all have stuff. All that stuff ultimately belongs to the Lord. But all that stuff is also broken and tainted by sin in this world. And he's telling his disciples, you guys look around and you might not be rich, but you see how the rich use their money. And sometimes they do shysty moves like this so that they will be welcomed by other business partners or by other homes that can bring them in when they're unemployed. They, they know how to kind of swing their weight around for their own good. What he's saying is this, you've been given things too, disciple, Christian. You've been given things too. Don't use it like the shysters do. Don't use it to gain more wealth or more power for yourself. Lay it all before the king, before the master, and say, what would you like me to do with it? So that when you use it, you may, receive, you may be received into eternal dwellings. There is, a, there is a need for our understanding of wealth and property to be brought to the feet of Jesus. And to be able to say, Jesus, what do you want with my 401k? What do you want with my faithfulness and my work? What do you want with my car? What do you want with my house? Am I willing to be hospitable? Am I willing to bring in the poor? Am I willing? Am I willing? Am I willing? And as the Spirit presses against our desire for comfort, our desire for self-realization, our desire for power through our wealth, all of those things must be... They must be impacted as followers of Christ. They must be sacrificed. They must be brought to the cross. So, in a season where we are bombarded, my email box, I get so tired of it, but it's also tempting, i got to say. Black Friday is nothing anymore because Black Friday continues all the way through like January 7th. Okay? Here's the thing. We are just bombarded with materialism and wealth building and do I have the latest dot, dot, dot. Brothers and sisters, when we're considering those things, when we're purchasing those things, whether for ourselves or for others, do we ever ask the Master about them? Do we ever say, God, you have given me these things? And a lot of us, especially compared to the rest of the world throughout history, are extremely wealthy. Lord, you've given us wealth. How can it be brought to you for kingdom purposes, for kingdom generosity's sake? And I say this partly with a great smile on my face because you as a church are an incredibly generous church. May the Lord continue to stir us up in our spirit that that when you have a Christmas list, whether it's you making your Christmas list or you looking at somebody else's and looking what to buy them, 
Do you pray over your Christmas list? That's something pretty practical. I'm giving so-and-so this, but is there any way that the Lord might want you to give something different or to also have an opportunity with that person to give them grace and truth? This is sticky. It's, it's hard. I understand. that this is, this is where things get rough when we start to consider how we use what we think is ours. It's not ours. But we've been given it graciously by a great Heavenly Father who says, now, let's see what happens with it. So here's the thing. There's another man, Joseph of Arimathea. In Matthew 27, he's called a rich man. In Luke 23, 50-51, he's called a righteous and good man looking for, again, this is that same word as Simeon, anticipating the kingdom of God. Eagerly waiting for the kingdom of God. And what does this rich, powerful man do? Even though he was a religious leader, it says in Luke, that he did not agree with their decision to crucify Christ. See, this man saw in Christ the arrival of the kingdom. And then he used his resources for the glory of God. He used his brand new tomb. Risked public disgrace and alienation. Went to Pilate and got the body and buried it in his own expensive new tomb. He paid eagerly in a very real decision that brought glory to God. D.A. Carson says this, Christians should make their evaluations in the light of eternity. Pity the person whose self-identity and hope rest on transient things. Ten billion years into eternity, it will seem a little daft to puff yourself up over the car you now drive, the amount of money or education you have received, the number of books you own, the number of times you had your name in the headlines, whether or not you have won an Academy Award, will then prove less important than whether or not you have been true to your spouse. Whether or not you were a basketball star will be less significant than how much of your wealth you generously give away. The one who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2.17 Let me read to you the last page of the Polar Express before I talk about the last person eagerly anticipating the kingdom. End of the book. At one time, most of my friends could hear the bell. But as years passed, it fell silent for all of them. Even Sarah found one Christmas that she could no longer hear its sweet sound. Though I've grown old, the bell still rings for me as it does for all who truly believe. You may feel in a very real way this morning because I think all Christians do at certain times like your clear hearing of the bell is fading. And your prayer like me might be, Lord, revive my hearing Revive my faith. Rekindle. Blow on the embers of my heart that I might once again see everything is lost in comparison with gaining Christ. Eagerly expecting His coming. The good news is Jesus said, I understand you may lose heart. Trust me and pray. Your heart is wicked and your flesh battles against you, continue to pray. Bring your wealth to my altar and let's see what I can do with it. But you still might say, I, yes, I, I understand these things. And Lord, help me to pray and help me to pay. But at the same time, Jesus, what else? The third man who eagerly awaited the kingdom was Jesus Himself. Listen to what he says in Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. This is the Last Supper. And the apostles were with him. 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus, get this, Jesus is waiting for his own return even now. Jesus in his perfect wisdom, Jesus in his perfect love, Jesus who, as the earlier parable said, he's he's not long in coming. He's not delaying. Jesus has not forgotten us, church. He's returning. He's saying, I'm waiting to celebrate at that feast, the messianic feast we see in Revelation 19. I'm waiting for that day along with you. So he says, come to this table. It can be hard to pray. It can be hard to pay. But Lord, lead us in those things and lead us to remember you. Lead us to celebrate your blood and your body together because we are people eagerly awaiting your return. This morning, if, if you're here and you, you're saying, I, I'm, I'm starting to understand some of this. I don't know if I am eagerly waiting for him because I don't know if I've ever eagerly awaited Christ. This is good news to me that there will be a change in this world, that justice will be brought, that full glory will be seen, that this world will be transformed, and the kid can play with the cobra. That may seem so far out to you, but trust Christ that it's true because He Himself said it through His Spirit. There is a day coming when all who are in Christ all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will live for Him for tens of billions and billions and billions of years. Will we wait for it? Trust Christ today, all of us. Trust Christ today, all of us. Believe His Word.